Welcome back to the Bigger Than Hunters podcast. Uh, thanks for tuning in. This is your your host, Hunter Didel. Uh, today, we got a special one for you. We talked to Douglas Bale. Uh, he's actually a Nebraska native, now uh, lives in uh, Kansas City, loves upland hunting. Um, he puts out content for Pheasants Forever as well as uh, GearJunkie.com. Uh, to check out and follow some of his content, uh, check out his Instagram at Sunka O'War, that's actually the name of his old dog, and then now he has a new dog, uh, puts out a lot of content that I love um, through Pheasants Forever about his new dog, uh, they went through eight states, did, I don't know, tremendous things throughout the states, went through like Illinois, Montana, Wisconsin, a lot of those northern, northern states, and most of it was all in public land, so honestly, his journey is incredible, you want to follow it, uh, had an awesome conversation with him. I mean, we did an hour and a half podcast and then Jerry and I managed to sit here for another half an hour, talk to him. And it was so interesting that we actually had, funny enough, I my phone went off in the middle of this podcast is because there was a tornado warning. We actually had a tornado actually come over our or my house when we're doing this podcast. So it's so interesting that I missed a tornado. So that gives you an idea. Uh, today, the podcast is brought to you by Whitetail Classics Taxidermy, owned by Jody Schultz in Louisville, Nebraska. This guy does it all. He does, uh, obviously, Whitetail, so he does deer, big game, uh, waterfowl. But the big one today is turkey. Turkey season is on uh, here in Nebraska. Youth uh, season happened this weekend. Uh, this coming weekend, I believe, is opening a shotgun. So if you manage to bag, you know, an awesome Rio like Jeremy's chasing one out in Kansas right now. Uh, you get a Merriam or an Eastern. You need to bring it by Whitetail Classics Taxidermy. Uh, if you're wanting to schedule something today, uh, call them at, give me a second here, 402-630-0031. Or check his uh, website out, whitetailclassicstaxidermy.com. He also has an Instagram, or excuse me, a Facebook and you can check out some of his prior work. So, a uh, personal friend of ours, awesome guy, does amazing work and affordable price. What more can you honestly ask for? So, just do yourself a favor. Go shoot yourself a Monster Tom. Take it to Jody. Enjoy yourself, and let's go ahead and jump in the episode. Welcome back to the Bigger Than Hunters podcast. It's your uh, your host, Hunter Dydal, and my co-host, Jeremy. What up, brother? Hey, it was good to see you finally put your snow goose video out. I did finally get that out. You've been begging me to. It's been it's pretty fresh, I'm not going to lie. I, like, watching watching that blue come in, you just boss them through the trees. What I would have given to have, like, a professional-grade camera on that whole sequence, though... I would have probably traded the world. Like, just to be able to, from the moment we saw the eagle. Yeah. That would have been awesome. But but either way, we've got an awesome guest. I appreciate you taking some time. Uh, Douglas, uh, I don't know, it's, it's Spale, correct? 
Spala, correct. Spala, yep. okay. I, you said it before, but I, you know, it, <laughs> I'm not good with names, I'm not going to lie. But I appreciate you taking the time uh, to jump on the podcast with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I congratulations on uh, expecting a child. That was a big announcement. So kudos to you guys. Very happy for you. Oh, thanks. It's uh, It was a little bit uh, <laughs> shell-shocking at first. I'm not going to lie. Um, and, uh, I, but I am looking forward to it. I, you know, there's a lot of good that's going to come out. I was talking to a buddy today, actually, you know, about, uh, being able to, you know, take our kids hunting and they can all kind of grow up together. And I've got a couple buddies with kids now. So it's just, I think, I think it'll, I think it's going to be a big change in life, but not quite. A hunting lifestyle completely, but so basically what he's saying is, I just started hunting with him. Now he has a kid, and I won't be able to hunt with him anymore. Sad day. It's a sad reality, Jeremy. Uh, I know. But uh, <laughs> let's kind of I just as a, a for our listeners, kind of tell tell them about yourself and some of the things that you do. Yeah. So my name is Douglas Bala. I'm an attorney for the Corps of Engineers. I work on their civil and military projects. I've been in practice. We're getting closer to 10 years now, but I'm from Nebraska originally. I grew up in Fremont, went to undergrad at the University of Nebraska, and I enjoy training Labradors and hunting. And that's, that's, that's my free time. A lot of my free time is really devoted to scouting, hunting, or training. So I was reading on your Instagram today, and it seemed like um, you didn't, I guess you didn't necessarily have a, a plan to have your dog, I guess, or explain how you, you got your dog now. Yeah, this one, Kuto, um, for the Comanche term, my fire. But I lost my last lab. It was a finished lab. I lost her December 16, 2020. Freak accident. She had an abscess that burst and put her in the septic shock. And mm-hmm. I lost her in about 30 hours. So that was right at the heyday of waterfall season in 2020 and uh, it was tough it was tough for me for a while but i had some friends that reached out to me and kind of helped figure out what my priorities were in life and motivated me to get a new dog and this is it this is the product of that loss this new pup kuto by fire how old was it um i isn't it your instagram handle isn't that your old dog's name sunko war that's her name, Shunka. And Shunka is the Lakota word for dog, so dog gotcha. of war. She was right at three and a half. So oh, man, right I'm not sure how old your dog is, but that three and a half marker, when you start clearing four digits and bird retrieves, like, that dog is good. It's yeah. about finished. That, that's where you want it to be. That's the fun stuff. I So Nala's, Nala's moving on three. It'd be this July, and... Um, She's she's between right between three and four hundred retrieves. I think <clears throat> she's definitely get that maturity stage. I think next year would definitely be her her time where she really gets set in. I she got hurt a couple times this year and that, that kind of set her back. There's a lot of good hunts that she kind of missed out on, but uh, I'm hopeful for next year and hopeful for that. But man, that's uh that's pretty rough. Did you so did you take uh. Shunka, did you take her out on a lot of like hunt trials and that kind of stuff? We trialed a little bit when I first got her. So I had her when I lived in Chicago. So trialing wasn't, I'm not really a trialer. Yeah. And trialing was tough because I lived in Lincoln Park, 
I don't know if you're familiar with Chicago, so I was right in the downtown area. Yep. And I just never really got hooked on that game. And just to travel in and out of the city wasn't really our thing. So hunting was big. And I grew up hunting in Nebraska. It was part of this passion that I had. So we didn't trial, but we trained a bunch. And I always trained with trialers because I think that level of expertise and precision is what I strive for. Mm-hmm. A lot of those big dogs at those at those trialers places, those professional trainers, I will never even touch. But it's nice to have those facilities, especially when I live in Kansas City now and live in Chicago then. I can't use birds to train with in the city. I can't use guns to train with in the city. So it's nice to have professional grounds to do that stuff at. Oh, absolutely. I That's the thing. is I, I thought I saw it pop up, and I can't remember if it was on Facebook or sharing opinions, but... I'm really not, un- I, I really don't understand the sentiment of some hunters that, you know, almost harbinge a, a bitterness towards hunt trial dogs saying like, oh, my dog's a meat dog or, you know, mine, mine's a hunt dog, not a trial dog. I just, I, I've never understood that. And I don't really either. I mean, I don't, to me, you have a black lab, I have a black lab, there's 10 monster black labs an hour north of me. I just... I love all dogs, especially the bird dogs. And for someone that works the schedule I do, to trial in the spring and summer takes away hunting opportunities in the fall. I'm not sure why there is any animosity between two. It's like if you love your dog and you give it the best life you can, kudos to you. Enjoy what you do. (laughs) Stand in other people's way. There's no reason to be negative about it. And the other part of that sentiment that I've never really understood is like, you know, most most dogs, I said most retrievers can do the basics obedience stuff, but it seems to be that sentiment. Those guys are like the you know the hand signals or um, the casts or that kind of stuff. They're almost like oh you know my dog's just a hunt dog. It just goes get some birds and comes back. It's like you know you don't realize how much of a difference hand signals can make in terms of helping that dog find a bird. Mm-hmm. Um, you know it's and I I don't know it's. For me, it's like you miss so much of that relationship with your dog when, you know, you take that or not take, I take that back. You get so much more out of the relationship with the dog when you can build confidence and build a relationship on hidden signals and the the cast and that kind of stuff. And that's almost what I enjoy more than hunting most days. Yeah, and that's the whole building process. You and that dog or team of dogs or however many you have become one. And also, I think on cold weather days or rough weather days or when you hit those long sailors, it's nice to be able to go and say, I can throw that dog 300 yards on a line and pick up something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, think about it. When we can even think about pheasant hunting. Say it's December or early January and we're hunting cattails, but it's unseasonably warm and we have some ice and it's thick. Well, you and I aren't going to go out there and waste deep water and retrieve a bird, but guess what? Our dogs can. And that's nice. So to be able to run with those trialers and do all that stuff and then be able to transition over to the hunt game where you need that kind of precision, it, it's so helpful. There's one time that I, like, if I could say a perfect example was I saw a pheasant run from one side of the field. It was in South Dakota, so it ran from one field and then ran across the road into a, a bunch of reeds and like a next to a pond. And I had seen it. Nala was out doing what Nala does. She was sniffing up and down the, the fence line. So got up, crossed the fence, went across the road. We had permission on the other side. 
I sent her in, knew exactly where, what direction it went, went in, flushed it, got it up, and, you know, came, boom, done, got the bird, and, you know, it's just one of those things, there's a lot of times dogs can find birds, obviously a lot better than we can, but there's sometimes that we see things that they don't, and so when we can work together, it provides the best results and success for everybody. So I agree. What and a good example is when we hunt the rivers, the Platte yeah. River there, the Kansas River down here. You and I are not retrieving birds in the river. Oh, no. <laughs> as much as we would love to, we're not going to do it. But having a dog that can do that and clear sandbars, <laughs> what more do you need? Oh, absolutely. Uh, just curious, how do you train a hunting dog in Chicago? Luckily, across from my apartment, I had an uh, empty lot, and it's just the basics. Sit, stay, come. Move it on from that, start with bumpers, set up, make setups, and just go that way. It's kind of hard to explain fully, but I had a full city block that was all grass. It was just a vacant lot. In a city block, I don't know how big it is, but that's, that's what we did it. And then on the weekends, I'd go out to those trainers and we'd work with flyers and guns. But it was a process. And at the time, it was all I had to do. So I didn't really think much of it. But now that I've left Chicago and Within Kansas City, it's like, dang, that was that was a difficult task at hand. But I I worked for a I had a busy life working at a law firm, and training the dogs was kind of like a way to balance out my life. So yep. it was just part of my everyday routine. I guess that makes sense. And to be honest, I I do a fair amount of training. There's a park over by my house that is kind of similar to that, next to a school, and I mean. For the basics and fun bumpers and that kind of stuff, I definitely run her out there a lot. And um, I mean, it it really it you got depending on especially a young dog, you got five to twenty minutes of their attention, or that's what they're going to give you, especially early on. So, really, a backyard or a, a park like that's perfect. So, and if you have a nice training ground, that I guess it makes a lot of sense. So, but so how did uh, how'd you uh, get into this new dog was it uh, a trainer that brought one to you or where i guess what kennel did it come from so this pups out of mill pond retrievers out in massachusetts maine maine out in maine and they have some pretty good black lab lines the trainer that we trained with here uh, last time and has a couple of his big dogs there and that's that's how i got lined up with them i looked at the breed history i'm really into the pedigrees and stuff yeah and I found a breeding that I liked and the pedigrees that I want. And there's a pup there. And it's pretty cool. They mail them to you and everything. And when I say mail, they come in a plane. Yep. But, yeah, it's, it's, uh, that's how I got them. No pond retrievers in Maine. I think next time, though, I'll probably just fly up there and fly back with the dogs. When they're puppies, they're pretty small, so you can use them as carry-ons instead of having them ride gotcha. cargo for all that space. Yeah, I, you know, when I when I got Nala, I I reached out some of the local kennels and stuff and to be honest, I I didn't really follow pedigrees or you know, history or lines or whatnot and um I honestly kind of fell I I really fell into buying Nala because it posts on a Facebook forum. You know, this guy was like, "Oh, that's really good pedigree." At first, I didn't really it didn't hit me. It didn't understand. I just was interested in he, if he had a, a black female and um he's like yeah I got one and I started talking to Shay or my wife about it and I started actually like understanding what the pedigree meant and um some of the honors those dogs had and I started diving in and I was like wow like okay like there's a 
there's a whole new facet to dogs and training dogs. And that's really one and all kind of hit me at once researching that information. So yeah, and it's not necessarily that you need to go pay high dollar amount for high end bloodlines and high end breedings. You can still get a great dog out of lesser breedings, if you will, excuse the language there, but, yeah. um, it's and I still could I still could have ended up with a pretty rough dog because think there's nine dogs in that litter. I mean, not every one of those is going to be field champion, and not every one of those is going to be good. But yeah. I just run the pedigree game to kind of help increase my chances of having a really good dog. But it doesn't mean I'm always going to get one that way either. Oh, I mean, oh, absolutely. And I've said that before too. You can get a, a neighborhood lab, and it could be the most amazing dog. And there's two facets too because. You know, there's the the pedigree side. You could, if I had to choose, you know, between an NFL player and you know Uncle Joe, and deciding on which kid is probably going to go farther in my football career, you're probably going to check. You know, say the NFL Pro Bowler is probably going to pump out a kid that ends up in the NFL or at least in a better football career. But chances are, it could end up like Michael Jordan's kid and never, yeah. <laughs> never do anything. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, it goes my exact, that's my exact position is Michael Jordan doesn't make good basketball players. Yeah. But a proven system, a proven breeder, Alabama makes really good running backs. Yeah. So the top dog out there might not make good puppies, so don't always run to that idea. But I will say, uh, qualify this and say not everyone can handle one of those high-end blue-blooded dogs if that's your first one if this was my first one i definitely wouldn't have gone there because it's it's a lot of dogs and i'm sure you've run across dogs that are just too much for people yeah and that's also a balance to to factor in when you're taking out a pup well i think that yeah no i think the other side i was going to say is the training aspect i mean you can have Anala that just is incredible and has incredible bloodlines and instincts, but I mean, if you don't work with them, it just goes to waste, and that's really unfortunate to watch. But I mean, that can go both ways. You can have a backyard dog that you, you know, train with every single day for four years, and it's finished and it's an awesome dog. So it it definitely goes both ways. Yeah, and that's the third thing I would always say is, at what what point are you at in your life when you bring this pup in? Can you provide for it? Can you do you have a program ready that you're going to do to train this dog? Is your lifestyle conducive to bringing out the best qualities in this dog? And are you able to perform? What uh, I just what just out of curiosity, what do you use as a training system? So I start all my dogs on the Richard Walters Game Dog System, just three basics: sit, stay, come. And then after that, I work with a trainer, and we go that way. Gotcha. But it's just those first six weeks to six months, sit, stay, come, knowing your name, learn how to place, train, and that's just the house stuff. And you can do that in, in an 800 square foot apartment or on a big ranch. All that stuff's pretty easy. Oh, absolutely. That's what I would say if anybody, especially younger guys that have the time and maybe can't afford the dog, when you can get into a dog and kind of learn how a system works and uh, it seems to be, you know, at least for me, you know, your first dog, you seem like you got to learn a lot and you've got a lot of understanding of how to communicate with the dog. But I feel like 
my second dog, it's going to be a lot faster because I understand the process a lot more and what it takes to communicate that to the dog. Yeah. And I will say though, like me, when I lost that dog a year and a half ago, because she was finished and then going straight to a puppy, there's also a learning curve for the human. Cause you think to yourself, why can't you sit? Why can't you retrieve? The last dog could do it. And that was, that was a tough balance for me for a while to go from a finished dog right to a puppy. It's, there's a learning curve for that pup to get up to speed too. And if we want to move into the travel stuff, that our first couple of hunts were not pretty. <laughs> so I'm just, always be mindful of that too. I'm just curious. Uh, did you struggle with having, uh, I would, I would put it in a way of like having set it, set expectations previously before you started training the dog. Did that hinder your relationship with him? I don't think it hindered it, but it definitely made some days very difficult. Teaching a pup heel at 10 weeks, 12 weeks or whatever, going into two months, and you're thinking, man, that last dog was great, and you're not. Yeah, it definitely made days difficult. But then as that puppy grows and their personality starts coming out, it just it makes the process easier. But those first couple of uh, – bringing on a puppy is tough. They're cute and cuddly and they cry all the time. They're not potty trained. It's just one of those processes you have to go through. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> oh man. I, so we had a dog growing up and like from day one, she had great desire, like was a great dog and honestly was really easy to train. And, uh, Nala, when I brought her home, I, I had already known that she she was the last pick of the females, and she had struggled somewhat with desire to retrieve to begin with. And he's like, you know, my dog was like this when I first got it. You know, you just got to work through it and continue to build some of that desire. And that's not something that I had understood or known what to do. And I remember when I brought the Nala home, like, I really, like, I was frustrated because, like, I had the set, the set expectation that, you know, this is a – high pedigree dog it should have high desire and it 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 definitely took a little bit to to build that into nala i mean that that was a that was a hard stepping stone for us but answer this time is one of those really important variables too yeah a week's time can be a huge milestone one day you're at monday you're struggling and then following Sunday, you're like, this dog put everything together. It's, it's crazy how that time really can impact them too, because they're growing so much in that first six months that you just got to understand time's important too. If they can't get it today, they'll get it in a week or they'll get it in three weeks. Just continue the program, continue the process. It was really odd. Uh, this is one of the oddest stories because every trainer, I shouldn't say every trainer, I say a good amount of trainers will tell you not to bring in live birds until you get to the point where, you know, I wouldn't say finish, but you have an obedient dog and you're really getting through bumpers. Um, I brought home a, a teal for Nala and just worked with her for a little bit with it. And it was like, it is really odd. It was like night and day difference on her desire when <laughs> I did that. And like, it was like, honestly, in a lot of ways, it was incredible. And it was a, is a super positive thing for us. Cause it, it definitely turned her light on. Yeah, I start. When did I, I think I started our dog, our, this pup on pigeons, maybe about five months. But that's the other investment here. It's if I I'm going to show you pigeons, and I hope that there's something good that I can pull out of it. Because if not, I might be in a tough position at that point. Yeah. <laughs> if the dog doesn't like it at all, we'll wait. We'll try it again later. But 
and I understand people who say that you have to wait to do all this stuff, but for someone like you and someone like me, especially is I can't put a year into a dog and figure out none of this is going to work. Yeah. <laughs> then I'm out a whole year and I'm, I have a dog that's going to be in the house for a while. And that's, it's not what I want. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So let's kind of get into your, your trip. So it seemed like, uh, from my understanding, you made some content for Pheasants Forever on kind of your the, the life of training your dog and then moving into to hunting season and kind of making your travels. You want to kind of tell us about that? Yeah, so that was a five-part series for Pheasants Forever, just about bringing that pup home and getting them ready for the first season. And, and we started in Wisconsin chasing grouse in the Northwoods. Have you guys done that before? Uh, we, we've had that conversation and I would love to, I honestly would. Oh, it, it is an incredible experience. This was my first time up there. So luckily this pup was like eight months at the time. Mm-hmm. This was my first time. So we're not, we were not going to have any success, which we did not. The two of us, she kind of roamed around aimlessly and the group I was with had some, um, I mean, there's at times 20 plus dogs there, pointers, setters, the German dogs. It was it was fun, but that was that first time and it was not pretty for us. And she was even scared of Woodcock, which was like, Oh no, this is not good, but <laughs> <laughs> it is a beautiful thing up there. It's so much fun. The scenery is amazing. The ticks are horrendous, but it's, it's cool. Woodcock holds pretty well. So those dogs point and you can almost walk on top of them. The grouse don't hold as well, but they taste really good. And, just the scenery in the fall, it's, it's incredible. Uh, but for you, and for me especially, walking through the woods is a skill that I've slowly started to acquire, but it's, it's not pretty. <laughs> not, not quite a cornfield. Not, not, not as much no. of a cornfield. Oh, yeah. There's a couple <laughs> times they had to, like, stop me and say, hey, this is how you do it. Pick your path. Walk slower. <laughs> so, an experience. How did, I mean, how were you uh, moving through that process? Uh, from the way you kind of talk, you seem like a pretty patient person. How did you take the struggle of your guys' first hunt together? I just kept repeating myself. This is my first time out here. This dog has no idea what we're doing. And there was an emotional aspect because that was the first hunt I was on without that other dog, Shunka. So it was mostly just handling my emotions, understanding the thing. And there was a couple of times where we took a couple logging trails by ourselves and she did chase after one grouse, which was a plus. And that was probably the only plus we got out of that whole experience for us. But it's just like, she's eight months. I'm not going to expect anything, but take her out and see what we can do. I, 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 man, I, I I took her out to a pheasant farm and I I planted a few few of them where I knew they were going to be that way just I knew that there was you know we we're going to have success or at least her being able to find some um and I think that helped her confidence and helped me a lot and I think that um being able to have especially going with a bunch of people and going out where you know you have some confident dogs I think that helps a dog tremendously like night and day difference. I would agree. Um, so for our first three months, we hunted with all pointing dogs, wild birds. So it was tough for this pup 
but all pointing dogs, which I think really helps that flushing dog locate and figure out exactly what they're doing. I think it's tremendous. Um, I think people who just hunt uh, labs and waterfowl scenarios are really like they're missing out on a fun experience with their lab in the upland situation because it's like how labs operate in an upland scenario I think is is tremendous and it's like a, an art of its own, honestly. Oh, I call it lab rolling. Now all my, all my friends down in Georgia and who run those big running dogs roll, and they roll at 200, 300, 400, 600 yards. My lab and your lab will never be able to do that. But I love seeing them track pheasants like that where they're just cruising, the body language changes, yep. the tail changes. It's, it's fun to watch them track those birds. I, I think it's, I agree like a completely different experience it's just the like i don't know how to explain it and this is this is going to be an odd way of like explaining it but upland dogs kind of remind me of like it's kind of funny but jurassic park like velociraptors like they just (laughs) zoom in and out and they disappear and next thing you know they just pop up next to a pheasant but like (laughs) labs are kind of like t-rexes man they just knock everything down and they are they will find that pheasant like that's how i would say i know that's kind of odd but that's just the way i think of it no it makes perfect sense and i always like to ask people who run flushers what does it look like when your dog gets birdie because you know when that dog is running and then i'm sure now you can tell when now get birdie what does that look like for you sorry about that my we're getting a we're working on getting a tornado i think my phone. Who are you? Yeah, there. So there's this big storm that's coming north south, and we're at like the the north tip of it. So we're supposed to get a little bit, but I guess the the bad part's supposed to go south. I think a little bit of Arkansas got some some tornadoes yesterday, but yep, my wife's coming down. I think we got a tornado coming. Oh well, Uh-oh. but sounds like Nebraska. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Well, it's like, uh, especially when I, I, going back to what we were saying, like I was talking to, or uh, I took Jeremy out. He mm-hmm. hadn't hunt upland hunted in a while. And I said, this is, this is how Nala acts. Cause he'd hunted with her before. And like her tail, the way she, when she finds a bird is like honestly different than when she waterfell hunts. It's just every dog has their own expression. And when they, you know, Oh, I got a bird. Like, okay, yeah. let's go. But man, that's the cool part. Like my dog, both, both these last two laps, their tails like move side to side in just a different way. I, I call it just like a different gyration when they get birdie and it's, it's cool to see. So what's, uh, what was the next step on your trip? When we went to Minnesota to hunt geese, and that was just to get the dog used to being in a blind with calls and gunshots. And she did not retrieve, but she sits there with me. And to me, again, that's just being patient, introducing that dog to these new surroundings, new people, new environments. After that was our big trip. We went out to Montana, which was really cool. Have you guys been out there before? I have not. That is a that is a bucket list situation. Montana? Yeah. Oh, dude. I would love to go, like, probably late October, get into Mallards on the river, and then get into early geese up there. Yeah, so we went early November for about a week and a half and chased shark tails, pheasants, and huns. It was it's incredible up there. And we drove from 
Nebraska through South Dakota in the Badlands, and then you go up through the Bighorns up into Montana. It's just, it's an incredible drive if you've never seen that. Like I said, I'm from Nebraska, so topography is always just really cool to check out. But that was an experience. So many birds out there. And I think that pup was eight, nine, nine months, nine to ten. So, and a couple a couple draws we got into and saw 30-plus birds. And my dog got scared because there was too many flushing sessions out there. <laughs> <laughs> Which to me, I'm like, oh, my God. This dog doesn't like woodcock. This dog is scared of too many flushing pheasants. A lot of kibble, but continue on. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, the, <laughs> I, I, I can't ever say I've seen, I've, I've seen thirty, fe- like three, thirty hens together, but I've never seen like thirty roosters before. That, that would, that's almost like a flock. <laughs> yeah, it's there, there's some incredible places out there. So, it just it happens. Yeah, I. Oh, man, might have to add that on the bucket list. I don't know that it's going to happen this next year. Shades or wife's there. She's due in November, so I kind of cuts my season and halvesies. Yeah. Shay's really putting a hurting on our hunting plans for next year. <laughs> I was. What does uh, it open at the end of October this year in Nebraska or something like that? I think the upland season does. Yeah, I yeah we say, al- we there's... always start the last Saturday in October. But all right, so we got Montana. Where'd we go from there? We we were in Nebraska for the opener before we went to Montana, but then we dropped down into Colorado and went out with our friends at the Front Range Guide Service, which was another experience out there for the waterfowl people. Man, that front range of Colorado east of Denver is just loaded with waterfowl. I had never seen that before. <laughs> I mean, there's you know, growing up in Nebraska, there's days where it's just raining birds. But to be in the front range of Colorado with the mountains to your back and shooting waterfowl, that was pretty dope. Pretty dope. I remember seeing some of the the photos and stuff from that hunt, and I'd, I I got a little jealous. I was I've been <laughs> I've, I've been wanting to go that way, and we actually talked about going out with because that's on the other side of the border. But Matt's. Um, on the Nebraska side at other guys outfitters and we talked about going out there. I don't we'll hopefully make it work next year, but we'll see how the baby thing goes, but yeah, I'd wanted to I've been wanting to get out that direction. Uh how did how'd your dog do with uh geese for the first time? We let her try a goose. She didn't do very good, but she was picking up ducks at that point. So, yeah. I was happy about that. I was really happy about that. But again, a lot of that is you sit in this, we're in tip lines. You, know, you sit in the tip line, you don't move when, when we hear the shots, and then I'll pick you up and throw you out, and you can go pick up the birds for me. Yep. And again, we're just continuing to introduce the dog to these situations and continuing to have success, but also not expecting a lot out of it. It's just, for me, it's cool to be able to travel around and do those cool things with that dog. And then we moved into Kansas, um, which was, Western Kansas hasn't had, have you guys ever done any of those? Uh, I've been down into Kansas. I've never, I don't, yeah, I haven't pheasant hunted out there. I haven't gotten to do as much pheasant hunting as Hunter has, especially in the past couple of years. Like I've gone on in and out of hunting with people that have, have dogs and then they would move or something would happen. So I haven't got to do those adventures yet. <laughs> Let's just say like, so I took him out 
and uh, we got into some pheasants and stuff. And it had been the first time he had been upland hunting. Seemed like in a few years. It was, so. No, it was the first time I'd shot one in two years. We oh. always we always do it a couple times a year. But my buddy who had the dog that we used to hunt over moved to Colorado in nineteen. I don't remember. But so we just we don't we hunt public. So <laughs> we don't kill very many birds without a dog. So. Yeah, I can imagine that'd be kind of tough, especially if you're walking some big parcel. <laughs> you're kind of just walking aimlessly, hoping for something. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes when we would get like, like there'd be some hunts where we get seven to ten guys, and you can you can do it if you have that many guys. But the amount of dedication that some of those guys have is not as high as people like me and Hunter. So we'd only end up with like three or four and you're just walking by birds. I can't tell you how many times you'd walk and like 40 yards behind you, birds would be getting up. They're there. It's just got to have that dog. Yeah. And there's some thick stuff in Western Kansas that I've hunted. And I go, I went out there three times this year. The first time was for the governor's hunt. And that was not a good time for that dog, for this dog. I had to put her up halfway through the day and I was not happy with her performance. The second time I went out there was with, my fiance's in-laws or cousins. And I think we had 14 people out there at that time. And there's a lot of young guys that go on that trip and they just kind of section off these conservation easements trips out there. And you just walk to the end and at the end they all pop up. So that's one where you don't even really need a dog cause it's way too thick. And you just are basically pushing everything to the end of the section. And that is, that can be fun cause you can, put up double digit numbers at that time and there's there's a ton of them out there and our third time out there was really when we had a lot of success analysis and peasants forever folks and that was in january and that dog was on point we had some good dog power with pointers and some other flushers there but it it took me till about end of december for the dog really to start picking things up and i will say in december we went to a pheasant farm for two hunts and two days in a row. And that was really when everything clicked for her. I'm sure it was age, but also being on 30 birds in the field, it's just, and a little field is just really made our lives so much better. I know people tend to get after pheasant farms sometimes, but I think that they are super helpful in a lot of scenarios, especially for upland dogs, but also just dogs in general, just building their confidence and repetition. Like it's, uh, it's incredible, like, the amount of difference it can make. And I was going to – I was curious, did your dog, with the amount of times it hunted with, with pointers, did it ever get to the point where it started to point? No, yeah. never. It's Is it yours? Yeah, so I, I, so I hunt with my buddy Dane, or we up on hunt with him. He is a poodle pointer, and his name's Boone. And, like, the first year they hunted together didn't – Boone didn't really point. He finally kind of got into it a little bit. And really over like the last year, year and a half, like Nala has picked it up. Now her pointing and Boone's pointing is totally different. He points, he's stoned in, he's not going to move. If that bird starts to move, he's he's not going to move. But Nala, she'll get to it, point, and she it's just you can tell if she's pointing or not. She'll stop, she'll be staring at it. You got three seconds. If One, that. two, three, 
and she's she's gonna <laughs> she's you know going to flush it and it's funny because boone will go point she'll run up kind of like point for a second or two and then they both like go to flush it it's it's really interesting i love that brace when you work a pointer and a flusher we had a we had a, a monster pool pointer out in montana but i think that's a fun brace when you have your friends or ever who run pointing dogs because one they can just cover so much more ground yeah which to me is like i don't have to have that fomo of missing spots but then to have that flusher come in and my dog will like work wide and then shorten up her back and forth. And then eventually her head will just be the thing moving. And that's when I know there's that three seconds like you're talking about. All right, here it comes. So. Yep. That's the other thing too, is I, as we hunt more and more together, um, I took out a, uh, so I, I take out more clients to pheasant farms once in a while. We get a membership out there for my work. And uh, we went out this spring and Boone had one, and it got to the where, like, they really started working together where Boone would kind of just run around and he'd point. And there'd be a pheasant probably within 10 yards of him, but he wasn't, like, real on it, on it. And Nala would, like, do her thing work, and then once in a while she'd pay attention to him. If she saw him pointing, it was just, like, magnet. It just, zoop, like, right, because she knew what was going on. Yeah, my last dog, so I had a good buddy that I hunted with, and he ran he runs a Vishla, and he had one of those beeper collars that beeps, mm-hmm. and then it goes like solid beep when it points. And my last dog, would she must have listened to it, when it got to, when it would get to that solid beep, she would beeline straight for that dog's nose. <laughs> so kind of the same thing. And it was like, wow, this dog can count these beeps or something? But yeah, I agree. I think once they work together enough, if the dogs like each other, they will get to be that symbiotic duo like that. It's I don't know uh, Boone and Nala. I wouldn't say they really like each other. <laughs> they don't like. Here's the thing: they don't fight. They're both dogs are just they're just kind of in their own little world. They don't let you. So Boone will let you pet him like after hunt, after the hunt. But Nala, she when she gets home, it's night and day. Like she stops. She's chill. She'll do whatever. But like in the field, she won't let you pay attention to her. She lets you pet her like once or twice, and then she's off doing her own deal. She just has no interest. It's odd. Don't you love that though? Isn't it so cool that she just turns on and turns off like that? I think that's the coolest thing. I I don't know if you've heard this, but I was listening to a, a um I think it was a video by Southern Oak Kennels. Um, he had said that British Labs tend to have that switch uh, that goes on and off. Um mostly due to their their old-style hunt trials for the British labs were, you know, when you were up on the docket, you weren't very far from the trial field, and therefore your dog really had to be maintained. And if it moved, you lost points or got disqualified. And so, therefore, you know, those dogs really were bred that they have that light switch to come on and off. Hmm. So, I think a lot of that socialization, too, like because I lived in Chicago, because I lived in Kansas City, that puppy when from four months to even now we walk to the coffee shop. We walk to the local bar. We sit on a patio and when we're out and about it's sit, don't be, and you're not going to be heard by anyone. If someone comes up to you, they can pet you, but you don't get a move until we say you move. And that's, I really work on and That's what I like about that British program is how they train so much for that on and off switch. Cause that's what I'm looking for. But when I'm out in the field, it's like, 
you can go, you can jump off a tailgate once they tell you to, and then it's, you do your thing. But yep. until that point where I say your name and you can get off the tailgate, you're under control, complete control. Yeah, absolutely. What, uh, did you have any other hunts after Kansas? Um, so our last one of the year, the main season was we went down to Arkansas for a day and a half and did a waterfowl hunt down there. And I think you guys had some rough luck in Arkansas. <laughs> I remember right. <laughs> yeah. Which, that was hilarious. My experience was much different than that. <laughs> I hope it was. I really do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I went down to this club. My friend Jonathan Wilkins owns a, uh, a duck camp, duck revival area down there. And it was unbelievable to see the ducks down there at the end of January. And that was the first time I'd been into Arkansas and we went down to Stuggart and then went around over there. And I don't know if you guys thought this, but everything down there just seems really ducky. Like every truck's got either a duck boat or a side-by-side on it. Every truck down there is lifted. Everyone wears camel everywhere. It's just like, this place just seems super ducky. And you drive and you see all those flooded fields filled with specks and snows and everything. I, I thought it was cool. It's it's honestly just a whole world in itself. Um, I'm just curious. I had this experience. So I'm wondering. Do you do you wear Sitka most times? Yes. Yeah, okay. I do. So do what you? I'm assuming. Do you wear Sitka like marsh stuff? Uh, this year I have the uh, earth color ones. Earth colored ones. See, so I was wearing marsh. So it was like the bright tan, browns, that kind of stuff. I got so many looks of wearing Sitka Marsh looking, they knew, what do they call them? I think they call them oozers, but man, like every place I went into, no matter what, like people were just like staring at me because I was like, I, I, they could tell, you know, being an out-of-towner, they're like, go away <laughs> or you're wearing something weird or everyone down there wears Bottomlands, which, you know, hunting there, I totally understand. I really, I probably would be wearing Bottomlands or Timber, but Sitka Timber, but yeah, I definitely stuck out. It was kind of weird. Isn't it? Isn't it weird? Or it's just, it's interesting that the culture down there in that part of Arkansas, that duck culture is just completely opposite almost of stuff up in Nebraska and Kansas where we're at. The timber hunting, the flooded fields, even the pits are different down there. It's just, it's, it's cool to see how people do it, but yeah, it's completely different. <laughs> I, yeah, I was definitely, it was, I don't know. I had a hard time with, I, how do I say this? I, I told the guys like leaving that whole experience. And if anybody hasn't listened to it, we go, it's called Ark, or, um, Arkansas meth house nightmare. Yeah. My biggest thing. And what I, what I told Jeremy and even on that podcast is I, I struggled because that's why I went down there. I went to experience a culture. I went to experience a different type of style of hunting I went to, you know, the culture. That's what I went down there for. And I was not necessarily mad about the hunting or not being able to shoot that many birds. I was more frustrated from the simple fact that that kind of experience was ruined just because of the customer service and the way that guide operated. But I definitely, like, at some point, I definitely want to go back. I'll have to take Jeremy with me down there because he's wanted to. But, man, that timber. Oh, I mean... I think you just have to go to a different place than you went last time. I mean, oh. we were, the one day I was hunting down there, we were sitting in a blind in a flooded field or a pit in a flooded field. And they just call these pintails like pintail mamba or something. And it's just 
pintail after pintail, flock after flock, 20, 40, 50 pintails all day. You know, you shoot the first bull right out the gate. You're like, look at all these pintails overhead. Hunter and then we had a really so. good spec collar oh. in our in our pit blind. And that dude could just lay on a spec call. And it was so cool to see specs respond to that spec collar. I've never seen birds flip that hard before. And then when I got, when I got back, I bought a spec call and I've been trying to learn the spec call since since it, cause it's pretty cool. Yeah. I'd, I've been, I've been working on it a little bit here and there. I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm proficient yet, but yeah, I, we had, a, I had a similar experience and man, like I, you know, obviously being up here and hunting on the plat and in that area, like you just know when you see a group of specs, you just kind of are like, they're just going to do what specs do and just cruise or go mess around or they might come over us and leave. But, you know, to actually see them like work, I, I wouldn't call them necessarily like, like honkers, but they definitely work like lessers and get to get them work in is, is a lot of fun. It is cool to hear the noise they make because it's just so different when you hear a good spec caller calling at them and just rattling off those yodels to them and just seeing them respond to it and everything. It's it's different. That's 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 the fun part I had about going down there. So finish up in Arkansas. What uh, I, I th- think your last leg of the journey was Nebraska, wasn't it? During Snow Goose. Yeah, Nebraska and Kansas for Snow Goose, which. I had some pretty good success. Most of my time was spent on public land this year because I was really trying to shoot a bunch of public land birds this year. And with this new pup, we had a great season chasing pheasants and quail, a great season with the waterfowl. But snow goose is a different monster. And I was like, I'm not going to reach out to any of my guide friends this year because I want to bring the dog. And that's always kind of an iffy thing. And when you start run an extended choke or extended tubes and lots of birds. It can be a lot for a young pup. So it was mostly us, but I, you guys had a good year this year. It looked like, and I sent you some videos of some of the feeds I was chasing. It's fun. Uh, I like snow goose hunting. I, I had gotten to the point and we talked about this in our lad, our podcast <laughs> yeah. last week was like, I, I had lost my motivation and drive to try to snow goose hunt, but I, uh, don't tell my wife, but I bought some more snow goose decoys today. Yeah, so he's sending me pictures while I'm at work. He's buying a bunch. Wait, you bought more today? Yeah, that's what I sent you. Oh, it was the, yeah. It I picked those. Up today. Okay, all right. I was like, you bought like thirty plus, or not thirty dozen, but like thirty plus the other day. Yeah. So <laughs> I. What'd you buy? Oh, just some full bodies and shells and stuff. Thirty dozen more full body? No, like thirty, just not dozen. Oh, just 30. yeah. It, trailer well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would love, to, honestly, if that guy was selling them at the price that I got them for. If they had a mega, like, full body sale at that price, yeah, we would need Because that guy like, was selling them, the, I got them basically 100 bucks a dozen for full bodies, and that's unheard of. So I got mm. a couple dozen full bodies and a couple dozen shells. But, yeah, he, he also is, speaking to that, we're, we're needing a bunch of, uh, floaters and it sounds like he's gonna he's working on selling some so hopefully i can pick some of those up so we're sitting we're picking up all our decoys and we're starting to put them away and stuff and my buddy had bought in some i can't remember what chicken down or uh i don't know cheap one of those decoys and they were they're rubber or plastic rubberish kind of feeling and Ooh. actually i think they're bulk decoy club but um 
we were looking at them, and they looked like they had been shot. And then we started looking at them some more. There's a lot of muskrats down that pond. Those muskrats had been eating on the side of these decoys, <laughs> and it sunk like a good dozen of them. Yeah. Like I had that on one of my full body spreads this year. I set it out in the field for a couple of weeks, and I came back, and a bunch of field mice had been eating out the feet of my Bigfoot. Oh. Canada decoys. <laughs> so I'm not happy about that because it's hard to get those big feet repl- those Bigfoot decoy feet replaced. So, yeah, that happened to me too. Oh, man. Yeah, you just sit there and you're like, son of a guns. Oh, you got to do that to me. I never did. I had some trouble finding those floaters this year. Did you guys pick up any more? I feel like a lot of those companies weren't selling snow goose floaters this year because I couldn't do... Well, I ran the socks and but I couldn't run any full body floaters this year because I couldn't find them anywhere. We like we severely struggled on anything. So I was looking at socks. I um I went back and forth on trying to figure out where a decent place was, and then it seemed like only the places that had really like expensive ones um had basically anything. And so I ended up getting some sky flies off of a I don't know, Skyfly must have, they must have sold them some, but it was like some farm and like home supply place. I found some. And then um, for floaters, I think what happened, I think Jared found some at Tangle Free early on. And then um, I think he bought a bunch of used ones because he ended up buying a bunch of Canada floaters. We actually, for like floaters wise, we had some ducks probably like three or four dozen snow floaters. And then we had like three or four can of floaters. And I keep trying to talk Jared into letting us paint them, paint them white. Cause I think that they would mm. run a lot better. And we don't like, I don't of the years, three or four years that we've hunted together. I think we've only like water goose hunted like once. And that was, it didn't even, I don't even think they ended up showing up. So I think we should paint those Canada decoys white. Watch it. We'll paint them, and then we'll hunt water like crazy. <sighs> That's just what's yeah. bound to happen. We'll see. Like this year, the late season in February for geese, it was warm down here in Kansas, so we had to sit around loaf ponds or in the river in the evening because those geese weren't moving. They were just sitting on loaf ponds and going back out to the river, so it was all water hunting. We... Uh, it seems like every year, and we talk about this, but every year it seems to be later and later when those we finally get some cold. Like this year, we didn't get cold until uh, what and last week in December, early January. Like we usually get some weather. It seems like at the week after Christmas, but this year it seemed like we didn't even get winter until the first week in January. And that's the biggest problem we run into is that those geese just don't get off the roost until half an hour before sundown and. I mean, it it's kind of a crapshoot at that point. It is. And that's why I spent a bunch of money and bought more snow decoys this year. Because I think in November and December next year, where I'm not up on hunting, I might just set out snow spreads. Because I saw snows here and specks here in, in February still moving south before they turned around. So that might be my thing next year. Because the geese and the ducks, I feel like, didn't really come down to Nebraska and Kansas. Well, they went further south. They just kind of skipped us. Then I'm seeing my guys in eastern Colorado still hammering birds. I'm like, <laughs> what's going on here? Do you do you see a lot of lessers in your area? Here? Yeah. Yeah, there was there, there was a lot, but further south. So 
I'm in Kansas City and I hunt over by Topeka, but you kind of mm-hmm. get to got to go further south down where what's his name Bobby Guy and all those oh, people yeah. hunt. You got to just got to get further down in the Kansas where those real big lesser feeds are. I drove past some of those ponds and everything when I was pheasant hunting out in that part of Kansas, and yeah. man, it is just loaded with lessers out there. Yeah, because I've always heard if you run a snow spread, you can really kill the lessers out of a snow spread. Something about... Oh, really? It's because they're so loud, just like snows. I think they're attracted to those snow spreads. If you if you mingle in some Canada decoys in there, I just have always... I've watched plenty of videos where people do it, and, well, Hunter won't like this, I, but Bobby Guy I love running those black and whites. Do you guys run those black and whites? at all i love running those i think those are pretty yeah so we i were, use the dive bomb black and whites and I, that's in every one of my spreads we run i want to say between third i think we run about 35 dozen so we run about we run five dozen black and whites we mix them in and then i run five five dozen speckle bellies mixed in because each year we seem to be getting more and more speckle bellies gotcha yeah we saw a lot of speckle bellies with the lessers this year too so that's that's gonna be like I mean that's why I'm trying to learn the spec call so I can chase snows and specs in November and December when we're, when we're waiting for all the ducks to come out of South Dakota. I can't remember what it was. I don't know if it was the actual like federal duck stand, but there was one of the arts this year, the first time that they had actually produced a um, the art was speckle bellies. And I want to say it was maybe the federal duck stamp, but I don't, I'm not sure, but it seems to be that man, the speckle belly population has definitely taken off. I'm curious on what they do after this year with counting them and wondering if they may, ch- might change the, the central flyways limit on them. But man, they, well, no, they, they seem to be everywhere now. No, they just changed it in Louisiana and Arkansas this last year. Yeah. It went from two to three. I wouldn't be surprised if they changed it up here, but I think the big thing that, that they'll change in our area, maybe not this year. I bet it'll go, well, they've already put out everything for this coming season, but I bet it'll go into the next season or the season after that. I think they'll change the season dates for our I for hope Nebraska so. Because it kills us every year. It closes for like a month, somewhere in December to like first week in January, and Gosh, we saw so many specs during that period of time. Yeah. It's gross. <laughs> I, it, yeah, it becomes, I don't, it's, a, it's a problem because almost, same thing as like snow season, man. Those speckle bellies, oh, we could have killed they, hundreds they, of them this year. Yeah. And like our snow spread, we could have killed a large amount of them, but they like, for whatever reason, speckle bellies, they like to just kind of hang out behind whatever's coming in. And then when they decide, oh, we're going to do it, they just like zip in front of whatever else is like kind of getting in. And it's like, you son of a gun. <laughs> and they get and they stop you, obviously, from shooting because you don't want to kill them. But it's like, uh, I, would, I, I hope they change season. I really do think they will. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. But did you end up having any success when you were uh, you set up on the river? For snow geese? Yeah. Uh, a little bit. Not as much as I wanted. I usually go up by northwest Missouri. That's that's the big place. And then I came up to Nebraska for a couple of days. And I think I was north of you. So kind of by that Prague Abbey area. Yeah. I had a lot of success field hunting up there. And then 
one of those days where we had that huge south wind and it was like super hot and I saw everything that I could have seen move north and then I was basically done at that point. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that was a, I think we were out that day. I think we had a good day that day. I can't remember, but no, it was a, it was a fun, it was a fun snow season. I hope we have one like it again and I hope, um, I <laughs> hate to say this cause we need rain really bad, but I hope by springtime next year, there's the the rivers running low and they come west again because that was a fun time mm-hmm. instead of just them skipping out. To I like that. When you said that, I thought it was kind of interesting that having everything be so low pushed that stuff further west because usually they just run, what is that, I-29 or whatever, yeah, and they just run it straight north. They run 29, hit the river, but they stay on the east side of the river generally. Mm-hmm. But this year, man, there are so many in Nebraska. I mean, you come up to like Adams and then go north all the way to, I don't know, Columbus. They're out there. I had some friends in Grand Island see big feeds. I was like, geez, I had no idea they're this far west into Nebraska. Yeah, I saw some of the biggest feeds I've ever seen in my life. I've got a couple of videos of feeds that 50 to 100,000. I mean, they were massive. And we had one day, well, it was the day that I had all of that video from where we came up over to the pond and there was 70,000 birds sitting on it. It was <laughs> incredible. <laughs> incredible. Honestly, it really was. <laughs> but, but, um, all right. So we're going to skip a B here. We talked off the podcast, but, um, bringing it up. So you being an upland hunter, um, obviously you've, you've seen a lot of different habitats, that sort of thing. So we're going to talk about the, it's the burger plan for Nebraska. So if anybody doesn't know what that is, it's basically a five year expansion on the game and parks, trying to invest into upland hunting to provide more opportunities for hunters. Um, and I'm not going to get super thick into it, but basically the idea behind it is that we're going to the state Nebraska is going to use the CRP program to invest into private lands in order for them to grow, basically paying the farmers to grow natural grasses and therefore the pheasant populations will go up and therefore it'll provide um, opportunities for hunters. So I'm going to start that off. Um, I'm going to let you kind of take it off and give you your first opinion and then we'll kind of, we'll jump in. All right. Oh, you want me to go now? Yep, yep. Oh yeah. So the Bergen plan, obviously we're all, we're both from Nebraska or all three of us. And mm-hmm. I'm sure over our lifetimes, we've seen the habitat reduced, the pheasant numbers reduced. Yep. And I have uncles, my grandparents show me pictures all the time about how they'd go play golf and shoot a limit roosters on the way home. And it's just yep. not that way. I mean, Howes used to be the place to be up there and you go to Howes now and it's, corner to corner, nothing, but no till. And that's an issue. So I, I like the idea of the Bergen plan because it wants to promote more healthy habitat for the type of population. I think there is an issue in Nebraska where it's like, how do we get more public involvement? And this is kind of your mission of bigger hunters is to get people involved, help the next generation behind us. And the problem is because Nebraska has so much land that is privately owned 
Mm-hmm. It's really hard to have a big management program that focuses solely on public lands because there's only 2% of Nebraska that's public land. So in order to increase that habitat, you need to partner with private landowners to one, develop the habitat, and then two, provide access to that habitat via the open fields and waters. So to me, that's that's the way I envision this Bergeron plan working. Okay. That, I mean, that in a thesis, I guess that makes sense. Um, I guess the other part of that is, I don't know, I... I understand the the proposition and what their thinking is. I think that sometimes I struggle with it. Um, and the reason why I say this is I struggle with it in the aspect that, and I guess I'll use this as an example. Um, I and a buddy went out. This guy has permission on this land. We went ahead and went to go hunt it, and we drove up. It was about two hours. Went to go hunt it. He got me all excited because he's like, oh, there's pheasants. Oh, you know, there's a lot of pheasants around here. Okay, mm-hmm. you know, get up there, and all of the CRP had been bailed, and he had sold the bales. So, basically, there was cut grass field. That was the end of it. And yep. the struggle I have with, with some of these programs is that it works until it doesn't, and the money flows out. And so, therefore, like, it's just gone. You know, when the habitat's gone, it's just done. So, I would agree, and that happened in lots of parts of Kansas that I was at this year, partly due to fire and partly due to the drought, is those emergency hay impacts that. And you're like, you look at this plan and say, okay, 98% privately owned. We're going to partner with all these landowners to deliver this habitat for us. And then you have variables like drought and fire. And I don't, I don't know what you do at that point. You either have to sacrifice the habitat for, to the fire and drought, or you pay it yourself and sell it and move on and hope for better better luck the next year. Yeah. I don't know if there's an answer to that scenario. I I mean, it's one of those things that I wonder if, uh, I guess why I say that is, how do I say this? I wonder at that point, and this is my, my opinion about that whole plan is, is it, and I'm just getting your opinion, is it, would it be more effective for the state to, instead of investing in a habitat, which I understand is good long-term, but is would it be better to for the state to invest in releasing more pheasants, which I know pen raise, let's be honest here, pen raise like 10% make it each year. But let's take this into consideration that South Dakota, the reason why they're the pheasant capital of the world is because one, they do have the habitat. I'll say that off the top. Mm-hmm. But they release almost a million pheasants a year for in the state in order for, you know, for 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 hunters to come in. Um, and because of that, there's a huge economic impact. And because of that, they get tax dollars back in their pocket. Then those tax dollars are reinvested into releasing more pheasants. And... My thing about the Nebraska part of it and developing habitat is a lot of times it it doesn't co- doesn't necessarily create opportunities, therefore it doesn't create buzz, and therefore it doesn't create tax revenue. And tax revenue is what it takes in order to pay for the habitat, and that's why we constantly see they either need to subsidize it through bills or it just runs out and then it's over. 
and then we have destruction of habitat, and therefore the opportunity is just gone. What's what's your thoughts about that? Yeah, uh, that 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 is that is interesting, and I I know I talk to my father all the time. Why isn't there more of an investment in upland hunting like South Dakota, who's just to the north, or for better Kansas, which is just to your south? (laughs) And I'm not really sure where the exact political appetite is with that. But I don't think that stocking those places like they do around Thanksgiving every year is a viable solution long term because without habitat you don't get anything. Okay. Right. If I go stock if I go stock a no till field or places around a no till field, like those birds aren't gonna do anything. They're gonna they're gonna die. There's there's no habitat for them. I think you have to be focused on the habitat first to start the equation. And once you build that habitat, everything else will follow along. And I understand I think what you're trying to tell me is how do I get people excited to do this if there's not really many places to go yeah. and stocking the birds, just like a pheasant farm is ideal to get someone started. Yep. Right. When you go to a pheasant farm, it's a great way to introduce someone to the sport because there's so many more variables you control can control better dogs, birds at a particular location and a lot less walking. But I think long term, we need to be able to deliver more habitat which will improve opportunities for everyone across the board. Yeah. I mean, I guess the idea I'm getting behind is that if I go to, when I go to South Dakota, um, or at least when you go to down to South Dakota, you, you come with an, uh, I wouldn't say an expectation, but you come with the idea that you're more than likely going to get opportunity to shoot a pheasant. And now in Nebraska, up until, you know, two, three years ago when I really kind of, started figuring figuring out the public land aspect or landscape in eastern Nebraska. I mean, I I rarely even saw a pheasant uh, driving around normally. I mean, I know where there's holes of pheasants now because I've I've waterfowl hunted on public land and I hear them or I just know where some some good stuff is by driving by or talking to other hunters, but yeah, that's what I that what I mean by between South Dakota, South Dakota. You're like, okay, I'm gonna go shoot a pheasant. I know there's a lot of pheasants out here in Nebraska. It's like, I don't really know that someone new is gonna be able to find a pheasant unless they really do their homework. Which, you know, I'd hope someone does regardless. But still, it's it's one of those things of lack of opportunity, which I know that that they're trying to solve. Oh, uh, I'm with you on that one too, though. Like, I'm I'm from Fremont. I I, I think you guys are further south than me, but well, you got a three light number, so I'm not sure. But uh, well, yeah, we're from Lincoln. <laughs> okay, but on the east side of the state, you can pull up Onyx or the GIS map in the public land around Omaha and north of Lincoln, all the way up to like West Point, is pretty sparse. And you think of the population demographic of Nebraska; mm-hmm. that's where most of the people are at. If someone wants to leave Elkhorn and go find public land. They've got a ways to go to get to something. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's, that's an issue too. And, and I think this is where you and I would be in agreement is how do we get those people more involved? How do we get those people out hunting when there's not really access to a bunch of public or private property on that eastern side of the state? I, I'm in agreement completely with that. Well, I think that on an, an honest truth is, and you know, I see people pop up on Facebook forums like, hey, is there any, where's some like upland spots to hunt? The first thing you're going to see somebody out of their mouth is, well, I should say, they're going to see three words, South Dakota or Iowa, 
because Iowa has a substantial amount their cost well, I twenty nine. Iowa has like they have the oh gosh I don't know the exact rule rule but they they plant CRP in their ditches. Yep. And like you can hunt the ditches in Iowa, which uh, from a landowner's perspective that would be really weird to me to see somebody hunt my ditches, but whatever. I wish we would do that here because I honestly I mean. You take Western Nebraska, for instance, like you go out of Western Nebraska and some of those areas that you're hunting pheasants in are ditches, like, but like they might, you know, be off of like a dirt road in the middle of somebody's 30,000 acre ranch, but it's just a grass ditch. And they're havens, aren't they? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the same oh, thing yeah. in Western Kansas or corners out there in Western mm-hmm. Kansas. And I've seen Nebraska start to do that kind of corner program in the central part. You're exactly right. All that that cover, I think you'd call them cover crops or whatever, yeah. those can be havens for pheasants. And I, I wish there was more of that on the eastern side because it's it's far away. Like when I leave my house and I go home to hunt with my parents or my father going from Fremont, it's, we got to go a ways to get into birds. And that's, and that's unfortunate because a lot of people live over there. I think I think exactly what you just said. A lot of people live in eastern Nebraska, and I think that's where the struggle comes from when it comes to getting landowners that will participate in these programs. Um, they get tired of people coming on their land. I mean, the sad reality is, even though it's you know twenty twenty two and people should know better th- by now, people trespass like crazy. Um, I know, like some of the like lakes that we hunt around here hunter for ducks i know of a few areas around them that are just great looking pheasant areas people have clearly taken time to like make sure pheasants can thrive in there and there's just no hunting signs like every 10 feet to make sure people don't go in there but i'm sure people still do unfortunately i think and like one idea that goes through my head, which doesn't fix the, you know, not being able to be close to it or good quality pheasant land in Eastern Nebraska is, and as brutal as this is from somebody who lives on the Eastern side of the state, I almost wish that when it came to pheasant numbers in particular, I wish the game and parks would spend a little more time on central and western Nebraska. And I say that because farmers are generally more willing to to participate in these programs. And a lot of the people out there, you know, have gone from seeing, you know, 20, 20 pheasants in a mile stretch in the ditches to not seeing very many birds anymore. I mean, you grew up out west and your dad would always give you stories about pheasants. Even my dad, he used to hunt central Nebraska and there were pheasants all over there in the 80s. But now they're even decreasing there. I my fear about this whole program is that, like Hunter's kind of saying, is that they'll do the five year program, try and make it work in eastern Nebraska, and as soon as the money runs out, everybody's just gonna plow over what was done, get out of the program, and I don't know. Well, I guess here's my here's here's my solution. I like the I, I like the habitat development, but that's my problem is the lack of opportunity mm-hmm. then therefore impacts sales dollars, which yeah. impacts the economic side. Here's here's my solution. I would say, you know, for the state to be able to purchase 
uh, or do their own pheasants, grow their own pheasants. I mean, you've got to figure out a cost. Therefore, you kind of figure out, say, you know, per pheasant on average, they're going to shoot, say, two to three pheasants a year. So let's make a pheasant stamp that's, say, 10 to 15 bucks, which I know people are going to harp about, but let's be honest, I think people are still willing to pay it. Do a, do a pheasant stamp and say, we're going to release this, this amount of pheasants across the state. Mm-hmm. Now, one of my, what you're talking about is talking about those releases around Thanksgiving. The farthest west place that they released them was between Grand Isle and Kearney. That was, oh, I, would, really? I yeah. didn't even talk about those. That was the farthest west that they would release pheasants. And you got to think of, I'm not, I'm not going to say it. I mean, people are, might be upset, but there is a huge reservation at Valentine that people pheasant hunt. Why don't they? Re- why wouldn't they release them out there? Is beyond me. And there's a lot of spots out west was like where a deer hunt that would be perfect for it too. But um, now, do a pheasant pheasant stamp, release a bunch of pheasants, and I think that would create the economic cycle of starting it out and getting people back to being able to be reinvested into the hunting. The other arguments for bringing more in you know, more money in from, you know, people hunting. I know out-of-staters are not going to love this, and Douglas, you may not <laughs> love this. Um, I wish that we did what South Dakota did, where it's like you get, it's either, what, two five-day periods? Yeah. Because I know I, some people will hate on me for this, but there's a lot of, there still is a lot of people that do come to Nebraska and hunt pheasants but because our season is so long and like well it's for instance let's say people from colorado those low the lowlands of colorado and even wyoming um a lot of that's private and there's a lot of public land on the west side of nebraska like well you talk about like the ogallala uh grasslands i mean you're talking there's 150,000 acres of our like 1 million acres of public land that we have in this state right there. And a lot of people hunt that stuff. Yeah. And I think a lot of people come in and out of the state throughout the season, which I don't have a problem with. It does bring income to the state, if you will, but I've been harping on it for all forms of hunting in Nebraska. I feel like our, I feel like, we should have a little more. I don't controls the wrong word. Regulation regulations and limitations on our non-residents. But do you think the people that are going into like Shadron out there? That's just I think that's the biggest town I know that far west yeah. are coming over to Norfolk. I mean, there's no way the people that are hunting Shadron are then trekking all the way across to like Neely. There's no way, right? I wouldn't think so. I, I wouldn't mean, think so. I guess you've got me there. That That is true. Um, I guess it just, just depends on how dedicated of a upland game hunter you are. Like, I mean, I think Hunter would know that if somebody asked me to drive three hours but said we'd kill a limit of pheasants, I'd do it in a heartbeat. But not everybody's going to be dedicated like people like us where we just get a phone call the night before and it's like, okay, I'll be there. <laughs> I oh, know. I do it. I mean, Colby, Kansas is four and a half hours from my house. 
someone's like, what well, am I, Colby? Like, absolutely, let's go. <laughs> shoot, literally once I get done with this podcast, I'm hitting the grocery store, I'm going home, grabbing my shotgun, I'm driving down to Kansas for opening turkey for shotgun. Oh, you are? Like, literally, I, so <laughs> I know exactly what that's about. <laughs> but, yeah, I think we both are in agreement on most of the virgin plan. I, I just don't know if there's a great, great answer to it. One, you got to build habitat. But two, you also got to build interest and excitement about it. And I, I will say that stalking gives people an opportunity to get into it. Mm-hmm. But I just think you also need you need that habitat portion. Otherwise, eventually, if you run out of the habitat, you don't have anywhere to stock this stuff. Because a lot of that land is all open fields and waters, too. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. No, I, yeah. I, I just wanted to bounce that idea off of you because I, you know, it's one of those things I had talked to my dad about and I've even like thought about it in the aspect of South Dakota. It just, you know, obviously you have a different perception coming from Pheasants Forever and I, obviously that, that organization makes a night and day difference for not just Nebraska, but mm-hmm. really across the U.S. So when they, what, what they've been able to achieve is pretty incredible. But I'm with you. When I go to winter South Dakota, I mean, there's nothing I, if I'm with 13 people, that's everyone's limiting out up there. And it's, maybe it's preserved birds, but a lot of times it's all wild stuff up there. But if, if I'm going to Northwork, I'm going to have to work pretty hard to get the women out there and, and doing stuff. And it's tough. So I'm with you on that. Like, why doesn't Nebraska have that perception of being such a great peasant area? Like, the states that border it because my father and uncles will say the same thing man when we were growing up we'd hang out in house and shoot limits every day up there we'd go after school up there and it's not it's not like house is a fine community so anyone from there a lot of good wrestlers so don't think i'm bragging on them too much but <laughs> yeah <laughs> i uh yeah i it's it's honestly and i i say that to people i said you know, I, I went with a guide, and, and he had kind of a small, just like a single guy operation, and it was more of a buddy hunt than really anything. But I go, I went up with him two or three, two or three years in a row, and I said, you know, surprisingly, the place that I saw the most like quantity, so like the biggest flock and quantity of pheasants at once, was like a mid to late November up in South Dakota and I said it was it was on public land they were all for whatever reason they were in that area in uh in reeds around the pond and man we got into uh one shot one one another one came up boom shot him and next thing you know there were just 30 or 40 of them all came up at once and it was it was a sight to see obviously I've never seen it in my life and I hope to see it again someday but I I'd like to see that in Nebraska but we all know that hopefully it I will hopefully it happens faster than I will say <laughs> I'd like. There are some properties in central Nebraska where we like to duck hunt. I've seen that before. Yeah. But I haven't and seen isn't it. Isn't that cool? Like I, I I think that that experience when you see maybe if you even see like ten to fifteen flush at once, mm-hmm. I think any person who would see you that number of wild pheasants flush at one time would be hooked forever. So that's why I'm glad we're talking about it because the mission of your organization is figuring out how to get more people involved and passionate about it. And that experience to see that many birds at once, you're like, that's a flock of pheasants is incredible. Absolutely. I completely agree. I mean, up on game, like 
really the only reason that I don't up one game like once a weekend is because I don't have a I don't have a dog and Hunter can't always go. Like I I recommend up one to anyone. I mean if you have the opportunity to do it, um don't sleep on it. I mean, for instance, Jordan from Good Life Outdoors. I've been trying to get him to go pheasant hunting for, with me for like two years, like since we kind of started talking. He he just he's just not about it. But then like he was supposed to go with us around Thanksgiving, and we crushed him. Yeah, and he <laughs> he was so mad he didn't go. <laughs> but so now, do you guys chase quail or chickens at all? Uh, we haven't in the past. Honestly, that's been a topic of conversation the. Uh, probably in the last couple Just of weeks last couple because weeks. the area that we're, we've been turkey hunting for there, they, they come and go like for whatever reason, like really, really wet years, they kind of disappear. And then like mm-hmm. dry years, they just show back up and we're talking about going out, um, next year and just doing it once in a while. Cause there are quite a few cubbies in the area that we're turkey hunting. I will say Eastern Nebraska doesn't have the pheasants like we all wish that we wished it did. Uh, but there is a lot more quail on e- the Eastern side of Nebraska than people give it credit for. There really oh, is yeah. like a lot where you're at and you head South all the way mm-hmm. towards me. Exactly. There's quail all over there. Yep. I, I've always thought one day I'm going to do like a, a quail four pack where I'm going to get a quail in Kansas, Missouri, Iowa, Nebraska. Cause that's like a nice place. That little that area corner, around Auburn, yeah. Rock, mm-hmm. Rockport, Maryville, Shenandoah. Like there's nice quail populations over there. There really is both public and private. I've hunted both sides of it. Um, again, like just like up one game, the dog is really important, but actually I've got one piece of public that we'll have to go to this year. Hunter that, Without a dog, we saw 200 quail on in two hours. I mean, it, it's crazy. Talk about something that will scare the skivvies <laughs> off you. Like <laughs> walking in in the morning and you're heading towards your duck hole, man. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> you know, you're just walking and you're just like, and they all go out at once. Like, oh, my gosh. Well, that day we shot all the snow geese. We were stocking up on the pond and we had 10 get up right from Hunter's feet. <laughs> <laughs> and he was, and that's the he, other part, right? They sit so tight, so oh, you yeah. almost step on them. Oh, I've stepped on. I've literally pulled fe- feathers off of quail before by stepping on them. Like you can get right on top of them. That's what you got to get Mal on is on some more quail cubbies. I I've wanted to. She like okay. So when I'm out and about, and she's just doing her deal, and she's kind of, she just hunts everything. Like you're talking about field mice. She loves field mice. I don't know what it is about them, but. She, I, there was a couple times we were pheasant hunting and she acted like, you know, getting birdie or whatnot. And she just zipped right out. And I thought maybe there was a pheasant in front of her. Nope. She was chasing a field mice and I, she grabbed it, looked back to me and was just jumping on it. And I was like, drop that and all. <laughs> like, you do not need, no. to need that field mice. <laughs> so, yeah. I, we we got to convince you to. Get her on quail. I'm also trying to convince him to go do prairie chickens, but I don't know. I guess he's just not about the prairie chickens. Eh, like I, there's some out in Western Nebraska. They're just like, I know they I'm sure, hopefully I don't make anybody mad, but they're just like less pretty pheasants. I like hunting pheasants from the viewpoint of like how pretty they are and, 
you know, the sound they make when they get up and everything, but prairie chickens are just, I don't know. I think the reason I have such a draw to, you're going to laugh at me for this. I think the reason I have such a draw to prairie chickens is because they're like mini turkeys. (laughs) 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 They they strut like turkeys. (laughs) That makes so much sense now. See, okay, this has been a... he, Jeremy's been trying to talk me into turkey hunting like this whole year and like hyping me up. No, you got to go. Getting, We're starting this weekend too. I have actually. I've went two or three times now. And like I've had, we've had some good experiences. Yeah, we've been close. Um, And I, there, there, will, there should have been a turkey died last Saturday. Like if we had shotguns, it was dead. Mm-hmm. And it was just the way it came across the blind. We just couldn't have like an ethical shot. And, uh, it was, I back up. It was, it was Jeremy's nemesis, the branch, mm-hmm. the tree branch stopped him from shooting a turkey. Branches have been a big <laughs> issue for me this year. <laughs> He's missed out on a couple of like opportunities because of branches, so it's driving him crazy. But if we had a shotgun, but going back to what I was saying, he was getting me all excited, and like we hunted the first day, and I was like sitting there, I was like. Eh. I like this, but I don't, I don't love it. It's not like upland or waterfowl. Like I enjoy it and I like being out with the buddies, but it's not like something I'd get super excited about by myself. Yeah. But I like to run decoy spreads out there. One of these days I'm going to put like 10 of them out there. I have (laughs) kind of how I get, I have thought about doing that. Just getting like a flock of turkeys out there. (laughs) (laughs) Because I know some people are like really into calling. People are really into, the running gun stuff. But me, I love running different decoy sets to to chase turkeys. Maybe it's like the waterfowl person to me, yeah. but I just love running different decoy sets to I, see what my, I can do. My big thing about the decoys is I love watching them beat the crap out of the Jake decoys. Like I'm obsessed with that. It's, oh yeah, that's the killer. Is you get a couple of hens and then like a strutting Jake, mm-hmm. or you get a couple of hens and a mating pair. And, yeah. and if you are close to a Tom. Or a few of them, they will come charging in. It's a game over. Yeah. And without even calling or anything, it's like they see it and they're so mad. Oh, yeah. But I tell you what, I would I would love to go north and go grouse hunting. That's been something that the change in landscape I would love to do. And, and everyone up there goes on public land, too. I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of acres of public land up there that they're at. And it is, it is beautiful, 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 beautiful and awesome. It's a little closer. We could go to Colorado, up yeah. in the mountains, chase some blues. I wanted your opinion, like kind of touching on your your law side. Have you been following that uh, court case in Wyoming about the corners properties? Yeah, yeah, I, I follow it a little bit. So for our listeners, basically the basically the lawsuits based on there's a lot of properties that are are landlocked. And it kind of goes into consideration of how how do hunters or people that own it, you know, public land hunters, access that property. And I think they're trying to sort through that. And I'm curious so, on what it's going to be like. Another aspect of it is, is there's a term called just checkerboarding. So it's essentially like where the corners comes in. You can get on one property where you, you have access to it. But then there's, you know, a property that is adjacent through the corner to the property you're on but at least my understanding right now 
it's a real gray area rule as to whether you're allowed to hop onto that property. Cause so like, I mean, if you looked at it from a four corners aspect, two of the corners are private land just straight up. And then the other two sides are public land and you're trying to hop over to one of them through the corner of the fence. Hmm. Yeah. That Western thing is, is after, after going to Montana and being in Colorado a bunch, that, that Western hunting culture is way different than stuff mm-hmm. in the South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas. And I imagine a lot of it has to do with the big game hunters out there. Not yeah. I think you guys chase elk, but it's just completely different out there with that kind of access and stuff and the corner crossings and just the hunting culture is a little foreign to me. But I think the thing that breaks my heart about that whole lawsuit or that whole issue right now is that, I mean, not, not really to be that dude, but all the ranchers and farmers and whatnot out there, one of the reasons that they want to, because a lot of it's beyond land, they are allowed, you know, through programs to put their cattle on a lot of those properties. So that's a big aspect of it, especially in the lower lands. But the other thing that just breaks my heart about it is that they're trying to section off these pieces of property that are technically public, but because like, if the if the if they get it the way they want, you won't be able to hop corners. I mean, they're basically getting tax free free property for them to use because no one can access it. And I personally, I think it's wrong. I mean, that's public land for a reason. I think if and is that because of cattle or some of what? some of it's because of cattle. I'm sure there are plenty of people that go, oh well, this is a really good piece of hunting property, but a lot of it. A lot of it, from my understanding, is due to using it for cattle. Because, you know, Wyoming in particular, I mean, that's just, I mean, I know we're the beef state, but that's what a lot of people do in Wyoming is they've got cattle everywhere, and they put them on public land too. So, How many times have you been hunting that cattle have ever interrupted a hunt? And maybe that's a big game thing that I don't understand. Even when I was in Montana at that really good space, Uh, it was a little slew full of, 30, 40 head of cattle, and there was 50 plus pheasants in there. When I'm chasing chickens up in Rock County or down here in Kansas, the cattle never bother me. But yeah, I, I've go never, ahead if you have more experience. I've never had issues around um, up one game, you know, from hunting in Nebraska because, like, I've hunted plenty of private land that's had cattle in it. But when it comes to up one game, obviously. Birds don't seem to care. Turkeys don't care. I've seen turkeys chase cows. So, but uh, the big thing is like from a deer hunter's perspective, deer hate cows. Like, <laughs> like hate, hate cows. Really? Oh, yeah. They'll be in the same field. I mean, they won't be in the same area. All right. I'm talking more from a whitetail's perspective. I guess you could say. Like, normally when I see, like, say, like in that situation, the the cat will be out in the middle of the field and then the deer will be along the, the tree line. Exactly. But what I'm meaning is like they won't intermingle. So like yeah. uh, I've seen cattle, like people put cattle in on a property and it's absolutely destroyed it for deer. Cause they'll, you know, if there are tree lines, now we're talking about Wyoming where a lot of it's just grass and, yeah. you know, shrubs. Mule deer, I have noticed don't have as big of an issue with cattle. Yeah, they just don't, and I think it's because like they're, uh, it they're not as intelligent. Let's just say it. Well, they definitely they're not as skittish either. And I think it's because of the open 
aspect of where they live, they are a little less worried until there is an immediate threat. Whereas whitetails and the timber, like, you know, they could come around a tree and there's a coyote or, you know, whatever right there. But I don't think that, you know, the effect on the wildlife is the big thing with the cattle. I think it is farmers don't want people messing with their cows because I definitely have watched plenty of people mess with cows on public land. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah. The only thing that scares me, I guess, from, eh, I don't know. That's just odd because, like, in Nebraska, if there's anywhere that there's going to be, say, like, a, a cow shot, it would be Nebraska. Like, there are some people that just have zero common sense running around with a rifle mm-hmm. during opening rifle season. Oh, yeah. But well, Wyoming? Heck, we, had, we had somebody shoot a calf elk on opening day of rifle this year on public land that takes some skill (laughs) that really does oh and the dude was from colorado i okay i'm probably giving too much information on the guy but he was a i just find a lot of hunter safety instructor feel oh my i'm not even kidding that's a lot of irony (laughs) it it was terrible like you're from colorado and (laughs) you're supposed to be teaching people (laughs) it was i talked to the game warden who I don't know if she worked it or if her partner worked it, but <laughs> it, it was a <laughs> wow, yeah. But I have you have you ever had um, like have you ever been in a situation where cows messed up your waterfowl hunt? No, and I remember as a kid over by Cedar Bluff, we'd use cows as decoys. See, I have I there, I've had like two or three experiences. One. Uh, we had to shoe a bunch of cows out. wasn't that big of an issue, but I will say like Canada hunts, they, there, there is times, not gonna lie. I've had, I've had a couple hunts, like kind of get screwed up because the cows one think that you're feeding them. And then number two, mm-hmm. they think your a frames are a bale of hay. <laughs> so they, they're not like, they're not like trying to hurt you or anything. They just, they think that you threw out food for them. Mm-hmm. Like that's like, that's just a natural thing for a cow. So there's a lot of times we're like, we'll try to shoo them away and then they just want to come back. Now there's one time we had a couple bulls in the field. Now <laughs> that uh, one was interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm not gonna lie. That one, you wouldn't have got me in that field. That I, one, <laughs> my dad has told me too many stories of getting treated by bulls, those, turkey hunting and deer hunting. No. So we're, we're down sitting in this A-frame as Dane and I. Mm-hmm. And so Dane's like real chill and I'm like, I wasn't too big because I've been around cows and bulls and all that crap a lot. So it was fine, but they just kept inching closer and closer and they were huffing Mm -hmm. and like the whole nine. And I'm like, oh, this is interesting. So they went to go like (laughs) take a bite out of our A-frame and Dane decided to punch it in the head. And we're (laughs) sitting in the blind and like this bull perked up like what just happened? And then finally decided to like snort and walk away. So it ended up working out, but... I will say that one, that one was kind of scary, but I, I guess I haven't really had cows mess up my hunts too much, but oh well. Well, Jeremy, do you have any more questions for him? Yeah, you should come, or not question, but a statement. You should come up to Nebraska and hunt upland with us. Just do it. Let's do it. Got plenty of quail. Um, we, we should probably, let me know when you're kind of thinking about that quail scenario. So we'll, Glad to get you in. I think that we've got some pretty good properties to, to hunt, especially some a mix of public and private on that. So 
Um, I've got a dog. Obviously, we're in gear dog, and then we've got uh, Boo and the Poodle Pointer, so that should be a fun fun hunt for us. Yeah, let's do it. That's southeast side of Nebraska. Southeast corner is really good. So, well, I appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast and share some of your stories and some of your opinions. Uh, you have any questions for us before you head out? No, thanks. Thanks for having me on. I'm a big fan of your, your social media following and your mission, so it's an incredible opportunity to be on. And I'm glad you talked through a bunch of things, and it's nice to see that there's other people who care about the outcome of the bird germ plan. Well, I obviously I I would just want the best opportunity and the most most opportunities for everybody. Mm-hmm. And if you got anybody that is listening to this podcast that's needing some pointers on Upland, uh, reach out to I, Jeremy, or Douglas here because um, he's got a lot of experience and can probably point you in some good directions. And so can we. So. If you're worried about opportunity reach out to us so we can help you out with uh, some information on helping that opportunity so uh, that's what we're here for so all right everybody appreciate you guys taking the time to listen to the bigger and hunters podcast um it was it was a great one so all right have a good night dang that was a long one